Welcome everyone to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on today's podcast, we have a really cool guest who is the first blind person to ever summit Mount Everest. Um, and you know, for him, he hasn't stopped there. I just feel like that was the only beginning of it. He's since climbed all seven summits, so the t- highest point on every continent. He's been on the cover of Time Magazine. He's uh, recently kayaked uh, one of my dream trips. He's kayaked the uh, Grand Canyon and all the crazy wa- white water there. I'm terrified and I can see, I can only imagine how it was for him. He's a former teacher uh, and he's a nonprofit executive. It's focused on the no barriers mindset, which I'll let him explain it, but it's all about how to uh, take what's within you and believe what's within you is stronger than what's in your way. Um, Eric's an inspiration. I'm incredibly excited to have him on here. Eric Weinmayer is uh, just an awesome conversation. Thank you for being here. If you haven't subscribed before, please subscribe. Uh, we need your continued support and we appreciate you being here. Enjoy this conversation. Thank you for being here. Um, we start this question, uh, start the podcast with the same question every time. Uh, so who are you and what do you love about what you do? Mm-hmm. Well, my name is Eric Weinmayer. Uh, I am, a, I guess, an adventurer, an author, filmmaker, um, and I run an organization called No Barriers. Uh, we help people break through barriers in their lives and uh, really tap into the human spirit and figure out ways of reclaiming their lives and elevating the world in some way. So that's been really fulfilling. What I love about what I do is, I mean, obviously the physical sensation of being able to go into these remote places as a blind person and experience the world through my other senses, through my through my sense of touch, my sense of hearing, my um, sense of smell. Uh, and then be able to experience these incredible, um, beautiful things in nature uh, through my other senses. That's been really powerful for me. You know, like going to the top of a mountain and being able to use what blind people call echolocation, uh, which is listening for sound, sound vibrations, moving through space, bouncing off of objects, giving you information. But like on the summit of a mountain, those sound vibrations just move infinitely through space. And it's a really beautiful sound. So yeah, experiencing adventure and exploration, but not with my eyes. So for our listeners, there's lots of places they can go to learn about your story. So I don't, I don't want to go too much there. Uh, but a little piece that I do think is uh, not as widely known as I assume people would know is that uh, you know you weren't you weren't born blind. You kind of uh, became that over time. And on one interview I, I was listening to of yours, you talked about um, when you went blind, you were kind of a prisoner in your own mind. Um, can you describe what that's like and what helped you kind of break free of that? Yeah, I mean, when I went blind, it was about a week before my freshman year in high school. Now, I couldn't see that well when I was born, but I could see well enough to ride a bike. And I even like dabbled riding motorcycles and things like that. But I probably had no business doing that. Um, And uh, running through the woods, you know, I was always a kid like running like 10 paces behind everyone else, falling into ditches and bouncing off of trees. But I could see well enough to function barely. And then, um, yeah, I went blind fully. And I remember sitting uh, in the cafeteria, listening, you know, to all the excitement, like passing me by. And it wasn't about going blind. I was too much of a pragmatist to worry about that. Like, sure, going blind was scary, not seeing. But really, it was for me, all the things I was going to miss out on. And yes, 100%, I felt like I was in a prison. Uh, And I I created partly that prison in my own mind. Yes. I mean, the world put me there, blindness put me there. But partly I was putting myself there because I didn't want to be blind. So I just fought it tooth and nail. I didn't want to be seen as a blind person. Uh, I was like a raccoon just snarling at the world. And uh, it took a long time to kind of fight my way out of that survival mode and, uh, and realize like, hey, there's ways out of this prison, but I got to be intentional about it or else I'm going to sit in this prison for the rest of my life, listening to life go by and uh, a life that was lived for nothing. And that honestly was terrifying. Yeah, I, I feel like, you know, one of the things that's really um, inspiring to hear you say is that, you know, when people have interviewed you, people will say, man, you're, you're, you're blind and you're just a prison. You're like, I don't, you know, 
yeah, that may have been my prison, but everyone seems to have their own prisons, their own challenges that are just as real to them. Um, what, what are the prisons? I know you help people break out of these prisons, part of your no barriers work, but what, what are the prisons that you see people in? Yeah. And what are the steps you encourage people to take to help break free from those prisons? Mm. Well, I, you know, maybe I'm laying it out on a limb here, but I, I think that people start out being motivated. Right. I don't think people start out being lazy or unmotivated. I think they all we all start out, let's say 99% of us start out with excitement and joy and possibilities and uh, excitement and adventure. And then what happens is all these barriers get in the way and they they just keep knocking you flat on your back, you know, or some catastrophic event changes the course of your life and just throws you into that prison or uh, maybe you step out of the comfort zone as everyone says you know that's like the phrase of the modern world step out of your comfort zone and they try something and they get shattered they get beat down and they go why would i ever try something like that again i'm going to stay right here in this nice nice safe place on this nice safe plateau to go any higher is just too risky and scary and and uh, or, or maybe the world changes, you know, like in COVID and we just don't feel equipped to attack it anymore, you know, or you're plodding up the mountain, you know, slowly but surely and you're doing what everyone's told you to do and one barrier after the next they get in your way and you get shoved to the sidelines and now you're stagnating and you're in this maybe dark, darker place, a place where you don't want to be. Um, and so, yeah, I think those are the kind of prisons. Sometimes the prison is cynicism as we get older, just pours down around our brain like a prison prison bars you know and so yeah i think there there are so many things that stop us and um my second book the adversity advantage i teamed up with this cool scientist dr paul stoltz and he had studied resiliency and adversity helping people to change their relationship with adversity to make it more positive and uh we coined we, we just called uh we categorize people into three categories we call them quitters campers or climbers <laughs> obviously me being a climber <laughs> and so it fit but uh but and but but we're all striving to climb you know not just necessarily climbing mountains but trying to figure out how to climb how to challenge ourselves how to explore how to how to keep evolving and growing and it's something i ask myself every day like how do i climb um it, it, it's so much simpler. It's so much easier to, to, to camp out. Um, but, you know, I think most of us want to live life in the current. Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you help folks. Uh, some of the main tenets I've, I've seen of yours are, you know, helping people develop a guiding vision. What role do you think that has in breaking free of a prison? And what, what do I need to do to start developing that? Well, that's an exciting and a long, complicated journey, you know, because I think, um, I mean, I'll speak for myself, you know, when I say this, I mean, I think a lot of times we're, we're living life on the surface, right? Like I became a pretty good kayaker and kayaked the Grand Canyon. Um, and that was pretty wild. And one of the things I learned as a kayaker was that you were on the surface of the water and you're getting knocked all around on the surface of the water by giant waves and and uh, boils and whirlpools. But a lot of that energy is created from the very deep down depths of the river, you know, it could be 30, 40, 50 feet down. And so you kind of are under this illusion that you're experiencing the fullness of awareness and but you're really just experiencing a sliver on the surface. And so I think vision is diving down into that, into the depths of your psyche uh, and trying to understand yourself and trying to say, who am I? And, and who do I want to be? And what's that light that energizes me? Um, you could call it a soul, you could call it the human spirit, you, you know, you could call it a light, you know, what is that thing that's deeper than biology, that's deeper than hormones shooting through my brain and fear and doubt and all that stuff that gets in the way. What's that the essence of who I wish to be? And I think so that from that springs kind of a value system that is your guiding vision. Uh, it's your values and action. And it's 
it, it enables you to not be able to see the outcome, but to have a internal uh, guiding system, like a headlamp in a storm, uh, where you sort of have a faith that like, I'm going to get through this and I'm going to emerge on the other side stronger in some way. Did you always have this worldview or is this something that uh, you, you find it in high school? I was interviewing a gentleman recently named Jeffrey Canada. who's was a really influential person in the world of education. And he said he felt this call in his life, you know, as early as being a teenager. Um, how, how early did you feel like you had a vision to change lives and to yeah. inspire others? Well, you know, all this stuff that we're talking about, you know, like you have, it, it's a very slow, <laughs> painful process as you get older, learning how to put the language around your feelings and, and create the, the template for your beliefs, you know, so that takes a long time, but I think I felt it. Yes. As a teenager, I would, I, I, I was going blind. Uh, I could barely see barely out of one eye. And one of the few things I could still do was to watch television and I'd press my face right up against the screen. And I was watching, um, a show actually it was called that's incredible it was back in the 80s and they were focusing on this guy named terry fox and uh, a lot of people know terry but he he passed away but he he lost a leg to cancer uh and he was in the hospital and he decided he was going to run across canada and that was like you know a marathon a day he actually called it the marathon of hope and he raised a ton of money for cancer uh research running across canada after losing a leg to cancer uh, and, and I remember looking at his face and it was just this absolute contradiction, you know, uh, exhaustion and exaltation all mixed together. And you could see, it was one of the last images I saw before I went blind that this, this person with this fragile outer shell, but this light kind of burning in his eyes and burning outside of, you know, be, transcending that fragile shell. And I thought to myself, you know, when bad things happen to you, you don't have to do the things that you're programmed to do. You know, we can, we can get bigger, you know, we can, those adversities, those challenges can lead us to places uh, that make our lives better in some way. You start going blind, you know, because you go into high school and then, you know, you get the courage somewhere to become a wrestler, which is pretty amazing. You know, I've got my sight fully there's no chance that I would be a wrestler for lots of reasons mm -hmm. um you go to college and decide to be a teacher is that correct yeah I was a teacher for six years what what led you into teaching and how how was that experience uh with being blind well one of the things I learned pretty quickly about being blind is you have to really improvise you have to be adapt adaptive you know you really have to think your way through and you have to create a lot of systems and strategies and tools and technologies and it's it's everyone thinks about this but as a blind person you just can't survive you know like i was late for this interview because i couldn't find my earphones they'd fallen out of my bag on the floor you know so i can't glance around with my eyes uh to find those earphones so i gotta put them away in the right spot every time you know what i mean so being blind is you, you have to have systems so that's really how i flourished as a, as a teacher I'd have systems in the classroom. I'd have braille charts. So I knew where the kids were in the room. I'd have the kids write on the board. I'd have, um, I had technology that helped me correct uh, tests and read essays. Um, and uh, I had a, a assistants that would come in from the high school and they'd get um, credits for uh, helping me around the classroom to correct papers and things like that. So I had this whole array of systems that enabled me to, to get the job done in my class. You didn't have to call. You didn't have to raise your hand. You could actually, because uh, I wasn't going to call on you anyway. So <laughs> you could actually talk out. It was one of the few classes they had where they got to talk um, without raising that hand. Uh, how old were the kids you taught? I taught middle school. I taught fifth, middle sixth, school, seventh, and eighth. And you yeah. did not have a hand raising system. I was. Yeah, the it was amazing. And it was a little imperfect sometimes, but I thought it was cool because it taught the kids uh, in an adult situation, like if you're sitting around a board meeting or some kind of seminar, you know, nobody's raising their hand, you know, yeah. you're, you're just talking. So it was, a, it was a pretty sophisticated way of embracing the community. Were there, when you were thinking about being a teacher, when you're telling people you want to be a teacher or studying to be a teacher, were there folks in your life who said that you just can't do that given what they thought you had as limitations? My dad and my parents were always really insanely supportive, always. I mean, that's, 
I say that and it's, you know, not, not all people are born with parents that are just insanely supportive of everything you do. Um, my parents would launch me out into the world and yeah, I'd get beat up a little bit and they'd sweep me back up and rebuild me a bit and sweep me out again. Uh, and so, so I had great parents and they never doubted me, but sure, you know, you get out into the world and people doubt you because they don't know who you are. And they are judging you just on the basis of one thing. You know, yep. I remember I was trying to get a job as a dishwasher <laughs> one summer. I thought, okay, lowest common denominator. I'm sure I could do dishes. I do them at home. Right. And I went around to all these restaurants and uh, one restaurant, they said, you know, Eric, our restaurant, we'd love to hire you. That was the way they always started. We'd love to hire you, but our restaurant's too big. We think you'd get lost uh, in the restaurant. You'd get disoriented, you know, pick a smaller restaurant. So I did, I picked a small one. They said, Hey, we'd love to hire you, but uh, our, uh, our kitchen's too small. You'll bump into things. You, you could cut yourself. There's knives and stuff all around. And, and so I was like, Oh my gosh. So I picked a medium sized restaurant and they're like, we'd love to hire you. But, you know, our pots come in really hot and you burn yourself and we think you'd be a liability. So everyone had a reason. And I never got a job that summer. I was really such a hard slap in the face to realize that no matter how good you are, there are these ceilings above you and you cannot break through them because it's people's perceptions of who you are that you can't fight. Uh, and so, um, so, yeah, for me being a teacher, I applied. Uh, uh, I got a lot of interviews. A lot of them said, hey, you know, I love to think about you as our, a teacher, but our board would never be able to pass this or, you know, our, our parent community would never accept this. I'm so sorry. Uh, but yeah, no, there was one school in Arizona that said, hey, this is really cool. I think you could be a great teacher, but you could also maybe teach the kids a little something extra. So uh, I got my chance. That's awesome. And so then when did you get the harebrained idea to, uh, I don't know, Summit Everest? Uh, a lot of people want to hike uh, when you're thinking, yeah, why not just hike the hot, tallest mountain? Well, it's not like I'm in the movies where, you know, you climb your first mountain and you say, I'm going to climb Everest someday. You know, right. <laughs> there were whiffs of it. You know, like I, I was learning Braille in, in my uh, in high school, how to read with my fingers. And my Braille teacher was really smart. She would Braille out articles about people skiing across Antarctica and climb, Edmund Hillary and, and, and uh, Tenzing Norgay climbing Everest. Um, but, but then at 16, I got this letter and it was, uh, in Braille as well. And it was a group taking blind kids rock climbing as part of a, a, a rehabilitation center for the blind. It's called the Carroll center for the blind. And they had this rec program for blind kids because we missed out on ball sports. Um, so they'd take us horseback riding and sailing and canoeing and bike not uh, tandem biking. And one weekend they took us rock climbing and, uh, that was so the definition of adventure. I was worried as a blind person, I wouldn't have adventure in my life. You know, like, as I said, I'd just be sitting inside this prison, partly created by myself. But rock climbing was this beautiful expression where I could feel my way up the rock face and find little divots and cracks and pockets and connect the dots in my mind, you know, map out the face and bring my body from A to B to C. Uh, I loved it. It was, it was so full of adventure. And, um, I guess that really did create the trajectory of my life because yeah, 16 years later, I was climbing, I climbed Everest. Um, um, but it was really more like, okay, I'm going to climb a bigger rock face. Oh, I'm going to try ice climbing. Oh, I'm going to get into the snow and learn how to ski. It was a very step-by-step -step process. And it was, it wasn't probably till I was like 28 years old that I started thinking, could I climb Everest? Is this a real possibility? You know, obviously people came out of the woodwork and said, you'd, you're going to die if you try it. You're going to kill everyone on the mountain. You're going to draw everyone into a rescue. But but the people that I climbed with and knew me, um, they were like, hey, you got a shot. Just like probably more than other people because you put so much time and effort and energy and training into this whole process, both you know physically, uh, mentally. Uh, building all those systems and strategies like I was talking about to be able to flourish in the outdoors. So, so the people that knew me said I could do it. And then it was just the process of being brave enough to start talking about it out loud. Yeah. The, those of us who, you know, I've, I've worked with Franklin Covey for almost a decade now. Um, and so I've 
known of your story because we're honored to have a relationship with you and uh, telling your story as well internally. Um, and I, I know you've talked a lot about uh, the importance of choosing the right team. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how we do that? I mean, right now we're going into the start of another school year and I'd be curious to know things that I should be looking for to make sure that we have the right team and that we are gelling in a way that's going to allow us to summon our own Everest. Well, I think, I mean, teams are all shapes and sizes and one, you know, teams don't just happen. You know, I think that's kind of like a little bit of a myth, you know, like, you know, teams just magically happen. I mean, maybe they do if you get super lucky, but, um, but I think one teams are carefully built, you know, methodically, carefully built, strategically built, you know, sometimes they're built in the flames of adversity, right? If you're a committed team, going through some challenge together, really, believe it or not, can unite you and, and help you to lean in and, uh, and support and believe each other in each other. So, so adversity can be a good thing maybe for a team. It was for my early days on my teams. Um, we went to a peak called Amada Blom a year before Everest and we were good, strong individuals, but we had never really climbed anything. We had a disaster. You'd call it a disaster. One of my friends, fell coming down in a storm 150 feet he landed on a ledge that barely saved his life and he went into shock pulmonary edema his lungs started filling with fluid and we had to get him down the mountain um the whole mountain was just the wind was picking you up and slamming you back against the the face um we're carrying big loads and just falling all over the place and just trying to get down the mountain uh and uh put Eric in what's called a gamoff bag, which is a hyperbaric chamber that you pump air into and brings you down to a lower altitude. It's something you guys can, uh, if there are kids listening, you can study in science class. <laughs> but uh, three days later, a helicopter swooped in and, and saved Eric's life. So people are like, you know, you had this disaster. Um, well, how do you think you're going to climb Mount Everest? Well, we thought like, yeah, we, the mountain had erected a barricade in our path. And Believe it or not, it was by crossing through it that we became a team. We were so far from a team. And so we had great confidence that we were going to do well on Everest the next year. So the, the way I look at teams is you're just looking for people who believe in you, who are who want to lift you up, you know, who want to who 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 allow you to stand on their shoulders and, and you got to then be able to let them stand on your shoulders. And uh and also, I think people who are motivated by challenge, you know, like our team leader on Everest PV, um, he told me, I love this because it's so beautiful to me that he would have dreams and he would tell me every night I have the same dream here. You and I, he'd say, are climbing over the Hillary step and we're hand in hand and we're going to reach the summit together. And I wake up crying. He would wake up crying. And I'm like, God, I mean. This guy may not be the best climber in the world. You know, he may not be Alex Honnell. You know, he may not, but he he believes in what we're doing so powerfully and he's motivated by the challenge. Actually, the challenge gives him energy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so that's really what I look for on a team. Not necessarily, you know, the best pros, people who are very capable, but yet people who you can really lean into and believe in each other. That's great. I like the idea of galvanizing around, uh, the challenge right leaning into it um yeah and if you're a weak wishy-washy team that doesn't have a very strong mission or vision or whatever you want to call it then yeah you're going to fold in that situation but if you're really committed and you really believe in what you're doing and why you're there the challenge actually the storm actually becomes a galvanizing galvanizing experience i think one one topic i've heard you speak to that really hit me in the heart is you know, I look at your life and read your books and watch your movie. And I feel like I am so inspired by the adventure. I'm like, God, you know, Eric had to be just, he just programmed. He wakes up every day and he's like, where's the adventure? I'm so excited. You actually described, uh, I don't know, life kind of as a knife's edge in a way of on one side, you've got kind of adventure and excitement, but on the other side, kind of fear, helplessness and laziness. Like I just can't imagine from what I know of you, that like, you're never not just like, let's go to the adventure. I think it's, it was really powerful to hear that you also struggle with all the stuff that we struggle with, which is like, you know, one side, I'm really excited, right? Tackle day. The other day I feel really insecure and I'm helpless and all the things. 
Yeah. No, that's very true. I mean, I'm not some super blind guy that just doesn't experience fear. I think if you, I have met people, by the way, like that, that, you know, like I, I had a buddy who was blind. Uh, he's a really good kayaker and we, we kayaked the Grand Canyon together and we're going through this gigantic rapid. And I go, dude, what's your level of fear right now? One to 10. I was like an eight and he's like, probably a two. And I'm like, man, you are so lucky. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but most of us aren't built like that. Right. Uh, and so, so yeah, I experience fear. Yeah. You're on this knife edge, you know, excitement, uh, adventure on one side and fear and doubt, uh, and, uh, and on the other side, and, and we're just straddling that knife edge constantly. And I I've straddled it my whole life. Um, I mean, there are so many times when I've gotten down from a mountain and I'm sitting in an igloo or something, and I'm just thinking I'm not cut out for this life. I'm not tough enough. I'm not resilient enough. Blind people shouldn't be doing this. I'm destroying my knees. I'm destroying my hips and my back. And, and, uh, you know, and, and the other side of me is like, man, I want to do this forever. I I guess maybe it's helpful that I was born with uh, what they call FOMO disease, fear of missing out. I just want to, I want to know what's possible. I want to know what's around every corner. So that's kind of been, a saving grace, I guess. Oh, that's great. I, I just, like I said, I think uh, your humility is a thing that on top of your adventure is uh, your spirit for life is really inspiring to me. And I think it's just good to know that someone that uh, is as brave as you are um, and as thrill-seeking as you are also struggles with the insecurity of yeah. like, And I wish I was smarter too, because like if you're really smart, you don't have to go through all the suffering to learn but most of us uh, mortals, <laughs> we got to suffer a little bit before discoveries and learning come into our brains and our souls. Uh, I remember uh, going up Mount Rainier for the first time. It was we wanted to climb it in the winter to see if we could, uh, uh, you know, get prepared for Mount McKinley or what's called Denali now, which is the tallest peak in North America. And uh, we got up to an area. Uh, and uh, it was starting to snow and I had set up tents before. So I, I knew my tent, I'd done my preparation, but yet the, the snow was driving sideways and it was this really sharp needles of, of ice that were driving sideways. And so I, um, I'd always taken my gloves off to set my tents up. So I'd just take my gloves off and try to orient it. And these driving needles of ice would hit my hands. And within like two minutes, they'd go totally numb. They're like, fish hanging from my wrists and I put my gloves back on and beat my wrists, beat my hands, trying to get them. Eventually my friends came over and was like, don't worry about it, man. Well, and they set the tent up for me. And I was so humiliated because I was like, I should be able to do this. I don't know how, but I should be able to do this. People shouldn't be doing this for me. I don't want to be dragged to the top of the mountain spiked on top, like a football. Mm. I, I want to be part of the team. Uh, and so I went back to Arizona at the time. And uh, it was like 100 degrees out and I was in a tank top and I'd have my big mountaineering gloves. And I'd be on a field near the school that I worked at and I'd break that tent down and set it up and I learned to do it in my thick gloves. And, you know, hey, to this day now, I can set up tents in any conditions. I don't have to, you know, it can be a driving whiteout and I can set up a tent just fine. <laughs> How do you find the balance, though, to uh, I'm, I'm thinking about your family right now is that you know, you know that you're determined to make sure that you can do everything that everybody else can do. But also sometimes it's great to have people around you, even for me to have folks who can help me and serve me. Uh, how do you find that balance to where you- Oh uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, at first I hated relying on others. Yep. Um, I hated that because I thought it was like pity. Like they'd be looking down on me as a blind person, you know, uh, and I didn't want to be dependent on people. And so, yeah, of course, as a blind person, you start to, or, or with any disability or any challenge, you start to like say, okay, I want to be as independent as I possibly can. Um, and then you realize that only takes you so far that actually starts to backfire because it becomes sort of this ego that's now another barrier barrier holding you back. If I can't do it alone and I can't do it independently, I just shouldn't do it. No, I wasn't ever going to climb Everest alone. I wasn't going to ever kayak the Grand Canyon alone. It took an amazing team of sighted people helping me, supporting me, uh, and kayaking Harlan Taney and my team um, on radios say hard left, hard right, charge, you know, brace right, you know, so they're giving me instruction and help uh, 
and uh, along the rapids when they're getting knocked around themselves, you know? So if I, for me, that's been this hidden gift of blindness is that you put your life in other people's hands and you, and you give them your trust. It doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean they're not going to say left when they mean right. But because uh, because no one's perfect. But 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 when you trust people, uh, it's this insanely powerful experience where you go to places where you never could have gone to before. Uh, and then they trust me. And that's beautiful when you put your life in each other's hands. It's a very powerful experience. How long did it take you? I so I've I've loved whitewater rafting, kayaking since I was a little kid. Yeah. And you know, I remember the first time uh I ended in a class three rapid. We may get yeah. too technical for folks who haven't done it. And I thought that was the scariest thing ever. <laughs> and then I loved it so much that I asked my parents to take me to the Okoye River. And at that time it was set up oh, yeah. where they put you right down in a class five rapid. Yeah, right. And I was terrified. Yeah. Like, how, and I could see what was coming. I could try to bend my body uh, and it was still scary. How, how are you able to overcome the fear of like, yeah, you're getting advice that kind of tells you where to go, but like you hit that rock or you hit that sweat, like it's, it's, it's jarring. How are you able to conquer that and to keep, keep moving? Well, I mean, I will say it's, there's a reason there aren't that many blind kayakers in the world. Uh, yeah, it is terrifying. And, and I'm glad I climbed for many years before I started kayaking because you know, in kayaking, you're riding this energy, as you know, and you, you're not always in control. And it's you're reacting to things happening to you so quickly, right? You, you're totally overwhelmed by all the stimulus that you have to respond to. And the river currents are pulling you in directions that you didn't anticipate. So, either, you know, suddenly you're in a place in the river you don't want to be. So you just have to be able to let go of your ego and and react just become uh you know um to, to for your nervous system not to be fighting it but to be accepting what's happening to you and then just being at this sort of primal uh state of flow where you're just reacting your, your brain isn't consciously working anymore that's why it took took me years and years and years to be able to feel comfortable you know, with 30 foot waves knocking you over and you're upside down for 30 seconds and just waiting for the river to release you. And then sure, slamming into a rock and just responding and rolling up and going, okay, I'm okay. Right. But yeah, it was a really hard process to be able to kind of let go and understand that you're not always in charge. Yeah. I think that was where my head was going is that Wow, I'm still incredibly impressed with the fact that you did ice climbing and rock climbing and, you know, hiked what all seven summits like I, I feel like, to me, the I can relate more to the kayaking and you can like it happens so fast that even yeah. if you were yelling, watch left, watch right, you were yeah. gone. And so uh, it's just crazy to have, you know, you talk about trust. When we talk about teams, it seems like trust always comes back to like the most important element for folks. Is that where you felt like, is that something that you would ascribe to as you think about your teams? A hundred percent. I think about my teams and I have love for my teams, like the deepest love, like the love for my family, mm -hmm. uh, for Harlan and Rob and Skylar and uh, Timmy and Steven who were on my kayaking adventures and, uh, and all my friends who helped me climb the seven summits. Um, you know, to, as I said, I just, I wasn't going to climb Everest alone. And so I could have either made a decision, okay, as a blind guy, if I'm not going to be totally independent, um, I'll just do the things I can do alone. <laughs> but, but then you get stopped in your tracks at a certain level. So if you really want to go to the highest mountains, yeah, you got to let people in and, and be a part of a team. And I looked at these people that took, you know, months out of their lives to help me get to the summit of Everest. And, uh, when we reached the summit way back in 2001, 19 out of 21 of our team reached the top, which is kind of unheard of. And I think it's because they all wanted to be there to be part of this experience. So people said, we're going to have a disaster, uh, an epic on Everest. And I was going to drag everyone into a rescue and people were going to die. Instead, we had one of the most successful teams that ever climbed the mountain, 19 out of 21 reaching the top. That was a world record. It was the most people from one team to reach the summit of Everest in a single day. And I mean, I, I don't want to like brag, but I feel like, you know, me being there 
uh, and my team sort of rallying around this beautiful thing was why we, so many of us got to the summit. Yeah. So that's, I mean, to me, like, as I hear it, I'm like, that's, that's what I want in any team I have. Right. So I, it sounds like we've got to have a really big goal. We've got to be able to tackle adversity together. What are other parts of things that you guys did in between the seams before the climb, you know, in day-to-day life that helped you guys gel together so that you can love each other. Right. When you talk about, I love them like a family, like how do we create teams like that? Well, you got to lay it out there for each other, you know, um, you know, my, my friend Jeff was like, I think one of the first pe- people I invited on the team and, uh, um, and, and, uh, he's not like a traditional leader, you know, like he's not like a CEO or, you know, he's kind of this dirtbag hippie kind of guy, you know, lived down in the, uh, by the river in his van, you know, he, <laughs> I remember to go to Everest, he quit his job. His, he was a physician assistant at a hospital and they said, well, if you leave this job, um, then, uh, then you're not going to have it when you come home. And he's like, sayonara later. <laughs> he left and he joined the team. He didn't care. But anyway, so, you know, like Jeff, when we climbed Everest, um, we left at nine o'clock at night for the summit and uh, Jeff and Brad who were on our team. They got to the base of the South summit first. Now that's the steepest part of the climb. It's real steep and it's a false summit. And then you actually have to go over the backside of the South summit, cross this, knife edge ridge like a couple hundred yards it's like a maybe a picnic table wide maybe two feet wide and there's huge drops on both sides then you climb the hillary step and you um are about a half an hour from the top but at the base of the south summit jeff and brad got there and they looked at these um lines these fixed lines and they're all over the mountain they're to you know mostly on the way down uh you clip into these lines and uh you know, especially in the storms uh, that happen in the afternoon when you can't see, nobody can see. So these lines are like uh, sort of guides to get you down the mountain. But anyway, so Jeff and Brad looked up and they saw fixed lines, some old lines to the left that was up this jumbly rocky terrain and then lines to the right up the snow. Uh, and and uh, and that jumbly rocky terrain was okay for sighted people, but not that great for me, you know? And Jeff knew that because we've been climbing together for years. And he looked to the lines of the right and they were all covered in snow, about a foot and a half of snow from the monsoons. And that's like a big decision, right? Like, do you do the thing that's easy for you or the thing that's easy for your teammate? And I mean, I call this Jeff's no barriers moment. It was so beautiful. He chose the lines on the right. He ripped them out. It was just insanely exhausting work at 28,000 feet. And I remember getting up there behind him and uh, he gave me a hug and he said, he, I've given everything I can. Like, this has got to be my summit because I've given it all. Uh, and I gave him a hug and I was just like, oh my God, he just sacrificed his summit for me. I mean, I'm crying right now because um, 20 years later, I still think about that. Um, anyway, so climbed over the knife, knife edge and up the Hillary step. Thank God Jeff watched me go and he got a second wind and he was behind me the whole time. Uh, so he summited about 10 minutes behind me. And uh, that was really awesome because I didn't want him to miss out. So, awesome. But anyway, that's a long-winded answer for your question. You got to lay it out there. It's not about the latest leadership principle. <laughs> it's about love. You you lay it out there for each other as best you can. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I read a quote uh, before we have the last few questions. I read a quote uh, about you that I'm interested in how it lands with you now. You know, you were on the cover of Time Magazine, which, I, you know, I think uh, I can remember as a kid having, you know, I don't know, it was first grade, second grade, something where we would create our own Time Magazine covers and write an article about who we're going to be. Like, you had that. And the quote, you know, said somewhere in there is, there's no way to put Eric, what Eric has done in perspective because no one has ever done anything like it. It is a unique achievement, one that is a truest sense pushes the limits of what a man is capable of. So, you go from the Time Magazine, uh, cover Time Magazine, to having this written about you. Was it tough to, you know, so you get all the accolades from it, but you're an adventurer. You want what's next. Was it tough to kind of figure out, like, what do I do now that, like, it seems, you know, by life standards, I might have reached the pinnacle? Yeah, for sure. Um, I remember sitting in the hot tub, my hot tub out in my backyard with my wife and uh, 
and I was getting letters from all over the world. Like people were like, Hey, you know, come and try this. Uh, this, I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating too much when somebody would literally said, Hey, I have this catapult. We're going to catapult you over a Canyon. And we have this giant wall that we build it's Velcro. And you're going to stick to the, you're going to be in a Velcro <laughs> suit and you're going to stick to the wall. It's going to be amazing. And I'm like, no, that doesn't sound amazing. I'm not like this evil Knievel blind guy who just wants to go out and do a bunch of stunts and find risky things that I can do to, you know, prove to the world that I'm this or that. I mean, that's just so freaking shallow. I didn't want any part of that. Yeah. I wanted the things I did to mean something. And um, so PV, who is our team leader, um, he, he did something so amazing. I still remember it. I, I came down the mountain and I was down to the Kumbu Icefall, which is another just jumbled up bold mess of boulders of ice of every size imaginable. And we had to cross through that 10 times. So you come down the icefall the last time you're so psyched to get through this labyrinth of ice and you're, I'm alive. I'm so happy. And PV pulls me aside and he says, he, he says, do me a favor. He says, um, he says, don't let Mount Everest be the greatest thing you ever do. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, well, what else is there, PV? You know what I mean? Like, I'm going to go home and eat chocolate croissants and drink <laughs> hazelnut lattes. And 50 years from now, I'll look back at the thing I did this when I was 33. And PV was saying, like, no, man, this is, this is not a trophy on your shelf. This is not a picture on your wall. This is not a line in your resume. This is, a, is an experience that should that should be a catalyst to propel you forward to new discoveries, new learnings in your life. Um, you know, you've gone through a lot here. And so let it mean something. And so it really helped me to think about what comes next. It has to be meaningful. So I did projects like I went to Tibet and trained six uh, Tibetan blind uh, teenagers. Uh, and we climbed peaks and, and, and Tibet. We climbed a 23,000 foot peak together. Um, uh, we, we, um, guided a group of injured veterans, uh, to the top of a 20,000 foot peak. Uh, and then, uh, all that work sort of got rolled up into uh, a movement called no barriers, where now we have done hundreds and hundreds of outdoor programs around the world to help people break through those barriers and sort of find what their own no barriers life looks like and then re-enter the world and, and make their own impact in the world. And so for me, that was, you know, has been the real legacy, the real summit um, of all these adventures. Well, I'm, I'm inspired by, you know, if you do the research on you, it's the, you the no barriers organization, but you're very clear. It's not an organization. It's a movement, right? And so tell us, what's that movement about? Are you, yeah. uh, I, I've seen the tagline, but tell yeah. me what the movement's about. Well, I mean, of course, there's an organization and staff, hardworking staff behind it, right? But I mean, like Covey, you guys have created a movement, right? You have thousands and thousands of people, you know, propelling this beautiful, powerful message forward. Well, that's no different. That's what we're trying to create. Um, you know, a lot of people, as I said, they get have these challenges and they get shoved to into those dark places. And, uh, you know, so, so we take the folks like that, and these are challenges that are physical, they're disabilities, like blindness, deafness, people in chairs, wheelchairs, um, people with autism, people with um, traumatic brain injuries, but also people with emotional challenges, what we call invisible challenges, uh, people with fear and anxiety, kids in the foster care system, uh, first generation Americans, right? And, and, and my belief is that, you know, we kind of get like, dug down into our own little niche and we and and that's more ego i think at a macro level challenge is challenge and if and there's not that much difference at that macro level between a blind guy and a kid in the foster care system we all have these macro challenges and so the idea of no barriers is that if we can figure out how to lean in to each other and learn from each other and unite we can solve those problems we can be super proactive about how to solve them and we can lift each other up and we're not waiting for opportunities to get plopped in our laps. We're, we're proactively being a part of this community that says, we're going to break through these barriers. We're going to figure it out. Um, and so we bring in um, dozens and dozens of pioneers, people who have broken through barriers that push the envelope and science and 
art and music and humanitarian fields, um, scientists, engineers, inventors. And then we create this big melting pot of, uh, of community where, where we're all learning and trying to figure things out together. Um, and so that's been really, really powerful to me. Well, I would just encourage anybody who's listening to you and is inspired by your gen, genuine spirit. Yeah, what you've accomplished, but what's clear is you, you know, any interview that you've done, but also talking to you today is just how sincere you are about life and love. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I go to your website and again, I'll make sure there's a link in our, our podcast. But uh, one of the things that I, I want to figure out how all everybody starts getting access to is your video series on there for no barriers. Uh, something that, you know, is password protected. So I want to figure out folks really need to spend time listening to your message because I feel like you have so much to say. Yeah. Um, what yeah, we, that happened really like before COVID, you know, we, we decided, you know, Hey, we're like this really high end organization that like movement, we help people, but it takes so much, it takes, you know, a lot of, some of our programs are like six to eight months long. Right. And and so we thought, how do we impact more people? So we started building some virtual leadership experiences with this no barriers life at the root of it. And so we've been working with educators and kids and people with challenges and, and some corporate teams and things like that. And that's been really uh, powerful to, to be able to kind of exponentially grow versus just doing it all in person. Yeah, well, I, I just want to uh, recommend our, our listeners to go search around your website and find ways to start learning more from you. Uh, can I ask you a couple quick questions? For yeah. Yeah. In fact, but, but I'll interrupt and tell you, like, for instance, part of this no barriers um, community, like um, we run programs all the time and we've been running some really unique things lately. Um, uh, uh, tonight, I leave, uh, I go up to Glenwood, at, which is West of here. It's on the other side of the Rockies. And uh, we're going to work with Kara. Kara, is uh when she was three years old was run over by a skier um really traumatic um she barely survived uh and so uh she has traumatic brain injury she has she's she has some uh challenges for sure with speech and with mobility and uh her no barriers pledge was to hike the mountain where she was injured at three years old so tomorrow morning we leave at 6 a.m we have about a team of 30 we've assembled it's a lot of her community and we're going to climb to the site of the injury and then we're going to reach maybe the summit if weather permits and we're going to make a short film about Kara and all the people that supported her along her journey um so this this really um this this stuff that i do it just really fills my cup well i think it fills a lot of ours and again like i I think that I appreciate the most is just your sincerity and your heart being in the work, which is why I want anybody who continues to listen to dive into the messages you're trying to get out there. One of the things that I know, so on the second season of our um, Change Starts Here podcast, uh, we want to focus on learning a little bit more about these great leaders that we have here. And so for you, one thing that we know is that every great leader seems to have habits and daily habits and disciplines that help them uh, provide strength and a foundation for them. Do you have any of those? And if so, what are a couple of the most important rituals or habits that you have? Well, I'll start with this. It's not quite a habit, but it's more of a understanding, I think. And that is when I go into the beginning of these processes, like I'm going to kayak the Grand Canyon, I'm going to climb Mount Everest, or any process that I'm embarking on. I'm going to grow this organization. Um, what I've learned is that you do have to go through this process where you have mostly questions and no answers. And it's insanely, um, it makes you feel off balance. You feel really tenuous. You feel really fragile, you know, uh, really exposed every time you begin these new processes. And, and for me, I think no barriers is really the life is like, how do you build the map through these processes, create a template to get you from base camp to the summit, whatever it is you're trying to pursue, and what do the elements look like along the way? Uh, and how do you express what those elements are? How do you harness them? How do you confront them? And so that you know you're kind of on the right track, right? Like, okay, I really have a strong vision here. I have a great team around me. I've, I've had some crappy things happen to me and I've been able to turn them into 
to good things and to learning experiences. Um, you know, so, so I think for me, one habit is really embracing what that process looks like every time, no matter what I'm trying to do. And, uh, and once you have that context, like, okay, I'm moving through this journey and I'm, uh, I'm experiencing the things that I should be experiencing right here at this moment. What, uh, another thing that we notice is that um, great leaders also listen and read other great leaders. What yeah. uh, authors or thought leaders that are out there right now, they, do you listen to a lot right now? Well, I really should uh, listen to more uh, thought leaders and so forth, but um, I really love like great books of, of literature. Like I'm a real fan of John Irving. Um, and, um, and so I've written three books and um, that experience has all the experience have been painful, but really fulfilling at the same time. Um, John Irving has uh, a scene in the world, according to Garp, where he talks about, um, it, it's actually his mom talking, I think. And, and uh, he talks about a house and, and the house has furniture. Um, and, and eclectic furniture and every room looks different, but yet the windows are open and the fog starts billowing through the window and fills the entire house. And so I, I often think about that as something when I'm writing or whether I'm trying to process my experience. Um, okay, your life is so, has so many different pieces that are so eclectic, but what's the fog that runs through every room of, of your mind and your soul? What does that fog look like? And 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 because that's the thing that unites the different pieces of your life. And so as a writer, as a thinker, I'm constantly trying to think about what that fog is that I can I can figure out to somehow make my life feel meaningful. Well, uh, last question is a little less uh, deep than those other two. Uh, I'm always curious, what, what are people listening to in terms of music? So I don't know if music's a big deal to you. So if it's not, that's great. But if it is, I'm always curious, if you're building a playlist right now, who are those artists or what type of music are you listening to? Well, I have to say, um, I, uh, I love 90s alternative. So uh, and like some of the hair bands of the 80s, um, uh, like Motley Crue and, and, uh, and Def Leppard and some of those groups and so forth oh, yeah. and some of the bands of the nineties. But I do have friends that have been very insulting and, and shamed me into start like really liking new music. So I have started to embrace new bands um, like some of those really cool independent um, songwriters like Jason Isbell or like Josh Ritter yep. um, or, um, or, or just those like really cool, like uh, body bear or, or these really cool, like uh, new new artists, and they write their own music, and and it's really beautiful. So yeah, um, but a lot of times I'm listening to music as I'm working out. I'm kind of a very physical workout fiend, you know. Yeah. This morning I biked to the top of Lookout Mountain um, early in the morning before I started work. So so a lot of times it's music that I'm playing while I'm flipping tires or climbing or working out. <laughs> Yeah. So then what's on your workout playlist? Like who, what's a group or two that are on your workout playlist? Oh, Smashing Pumpkins, Guns yes. and Roses, um, <laughs> Stone Temple Pilot, you know, yes. something that gets you charged <laughs> up for your workout. That's awesome. It's, it's really hard though. I mean, I love music and I try to get into as much new music as possible, but it's really hard when you have such an affinity, especially towards a certain type of music or a certain period of music to, to get off of it. Um, and I'm glad you went there to name the groups because it'll give, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole after this and introduce my kids to some of these amazing groups that I probably haven't listened to in a long enough time. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, I even love like cheesy, like soundtracks, like the Karate Kid soundtrack and Rocky, um, <laughs> I, the tiger, I still love I, the tiger. And in fact, uh, I'm, I'm the goofball playing I, the tiger at 5.00 AM. Like when we're ready to start out on a climb, I'm like, yeah, let's get motivated. And I'm, dance into eye of the tiger so i think that makes me kind of a dorky dad but whatever no i love it i switched from that i i tried to uh my freshman year those of us that had uh the short straw and had 8 a.m class which sounds ridiculous now um i 
blared in our dorm uh kung fu fighting oh yeah as, as like the uh wake up song because you know it's like uh, uh, uh <laughs> and then all of a sudden like everybody was kung fu fighting and so That's i would wake everybody up so i'm with you like the 5 a.m yeah. you need something that just like oh uh, yeah switch flips the switch on for you mm. and um, then in covid um you know everyone being quarantined i said hey i'm not gonna sit around and like just survive this i gotta come out ahead somehow so i started playing the guitar and my gosh that has been the most beautiful fun experience of, of my life you know just creating music under my fingertips and singing along and singing songs and sitting around campfires it's just it's brought me so much joy um uh, you know being able to play some music what was the first song that you really like song that you liked right not like Mary had a little lamb on the on the guitar, but like a song that you like listen to and you're like, I want to be able to play that. Have you got to one of you Oh got yeah, for it? sure. Tons of James Taylor kind of uh, music. Uh and um like just this yesterday I learned um I I what are they called? The procrastinators. It's I will walk 500 yes. miles and I will walk 500 more. So I learned to play that on my guitar. And it's just, it may be a cheesy song, but it is so fun to play and sing to. Uh, so a lot of times these days I should be uh, working and I'm sitting in my couch playing the guitar. Yeah, I think the group was the Proclaimers, but they Proclaimers, were- Proclaimers, thank you. Yeah, I like the, the procrastinators. procrastinators though. I like the Sorry, procrastinators. I'm the procrastinator. They are the Proclaimers. Very good. Oh, that's great. I see so, uh, a, a new friend of mine recently was pushing me to start asking people about their music because if you listen to music, it's so personal and it does so much for your life. And so uh, thanks for going down this rabbit hole with me. Last, <laughs> nice. last question we ask everybody, especially uh, for you is- you know, you, you're talking to audiences all the time now and you're, you're, you know, as you're just talked about, you're making a short film here. So you're constantly thinking about where, where are people at and how can I help them break through, right? Hence yeah. the barriers movement. What's the best piece of advice or just a piece of advice that's on your heart right now that you want to share with folks um, to encourage them as they leave here today? Well, one thing I really try carefully not to do, I try not to, you know, like make life too prescriptive because yes it's great to have prescription but it's also great to like go through your own journey and learn and discover and get propelled into these new environments where you're like wow i just learned something so important i don't want to shortchange anybody in that process um so i'm real careful not to like impose too much of my template onto others because then you kill the magic uh that people I think aspire to in their lives. But I will say one of the guiding principles um, that has really inspired me and probably uh, taken up a lot of my thought process is this idea that people call alchemy. You know, um, like it, it, the, per the perfect story for me is this friend of mine, Hugh Herr, who helped us start No Barriers. He's a double egg amputee. Um, and uh, and he was a brilliant climber. He lost his legs in a climbing accident. He got lost in a storm and he, his legs froze. They had to be amputated. And, you know, look, it's not like some fairy tale. He woke up in the hospital and he looked down at where his legs were supposed to be. Instead, the sheets just dropped into space and he wailed. He told me he cried, cried and cried and cried. And um, but he also told me this, which is what I always think about. He said, the greatest breakthrough of his life was when he looked down at where his legs were supposed to be. And instead of seeing loss, what he saw, he told me was a blank canvas. And he was the painter and he could build in that space anything his mind could conceive. And so the point being that that loss had begun to transform into other things like, you know, the seeds of creation and innovation. And he wanted to climb. So he built these uh, prosthetic legs in his garage and he was able to climb became a world-class climber, building all these different shaped feet and legs and, and took that experience. And he went on and went and got his uh, bioengineering PhD and uh, now runs the biomechatronics laboratory at MIT, building the most sophisticated prosthetic legs in the world. They're like $65 million of R&D. And so that is the process of alchemy, I think in a nutshell, it's like what we're all trying to do, right? Like take sadness and turn it into joy and 
and and uh, struggle into into innovation and and uh, uncertainty and into purpose, right? I think adversity, like you know, I couldn't have stopped myself from going blind. There was nothing I could do. So challenge, you know, adversity does shape you. Um, but maybe you have a choice in terms of how it shapes you. It, you know, maybe you can be shaped into something kind of beautiful. Eric, um, thank you for choosing bravery and adventure over comfort and camping. Um, yeah, I you. appreciate you having the courage to climb and also kayak now. I feel like uh, um, you're definitely being used for a movement, that's for sure. And yeah. I encourage you to keep climbing and keep encouraging us to get better. And thank you for bringing uh, your whole heart here and giving us an hour of your time today. Oh yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, cool. Now I take off to climb a mountain in the morning. So thank you. This is awesome. Well, good luck tomorrow. I appreciate you so much. All right. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. You too. Bye. <laughs> Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcast on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.